Over the last few weeks, we've discussed many of the issues in Psaq that overflow from perhaps localized halachic decision-making into the policy of Psaq. And we've described the ways in which an effective posseg not only needs to ensure that he formulates a cogent halachic decision, but needs to make sure that that decision has the proper impact on the community that he's speaking to, or the individual that he's speaking to. And therefore, we spoke about issues of audience and rhetoric and language that postkim use. We spoke about cases in which postkim focus more on policy than on um, perhaps localized decision-making. But I think it is worth moving a bit broader and talking about perhaps the most central policy concern that drives much of rabbinic decision-making, which, if implicit in some of the things we've spoken about, we haven't taken on head-on. And that is the issue of the slippery slope. And we touched on this when we talked about the policy of Psak, that sometimes post-scheme are more hesitant to permit certain things, which could be defended if they think that it might lead to a situation where on a communal level it would be unacceptable. And in general, the slippery slope argument that one prohibits X, not because X is intrinsically prohibited, but because Y is problematic and we want to prevent Y from happening, that is really a fundamental concern within rabbinic thinking, starting with Chazal and moving to later poskim. Now, I think anyone familiar with rabbinic writings is aware of the centrality of gzerot, takanot, prohibitions that are set up to prevent the violation of more stringent laws. But I think for many of us, the issue here has become more real in the previous few months as we see the way, so to speak, takanot are made outside, perhaps, the localized realm of halacha and are being made in the health context, in the context of the coronavirus. One of my neighbors commented to me a few weeks ago that he didn't quite internalize the importance of gzerot and takanot and taking into account the slippery slope until we lived through this uh, experience that we're still going through, even as things get better here in Israel, of the coronavirus. And he said, the fact that many people felt it was important to continue following the rules in their strictest fashion, even in communities like our own, where we're relatively self-contained and we've gone weeks without having a positive case, indicates that we understand that what's important is not just whether we are going to catch the coronavirus by not wearing a mask or by coming within a few feet of our neighbor or the like, but that we think that if everybody maintains the rules and everybody avoids coming too close and ensures that they're wearing masks and doesn't go out when 
it's unnecessary, and the like, then people who are in higher risk groups or in communities where there are more cases and the, the chances of spread are higher than it is perhaps in our own, if we all keep by the rules, then we have a better chance at defeating this. And that type of thinking, that I keep a rule that maybe locally doesn't make as much sense for me as it does for somebody else, in order to make sure that a negative result does not come about, that I think is something that we have um, that we have really begun to understand in a deeper way as we live through um, what is essentially a um, an attempt at curbing a dangerous result through many layers of protective rules, decrees, uh, and the like. So what I want to do is talk about perhaps some of the basic ideas in Chazal and a later post-scheme about the slippery slope to understand how this policy concern plays out in, uh, in Halacha. So as I said, the slippery slope concern essentially means that one is worried that a terrible result will come about and therefore sets up um, precautionary measures. Now, the, there is a fallacious sense of the slippery slope, um, which is sometimes called the continuum fallacy, where one argues that one must prohibit X because it will definitely lead to Y without acknowledging the possibility that there is a middle ground. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what Chazal are talking about or Postkim are talking about. It's not that they think that every time you don't set up a prohibitive measure, um, it will automatically lead to more dangerous results. But Chazal are worried that if they don't protect, let's say, biblical law, so then it is likely that that not impossible, that that law will not be prohibited. And that's why we'll see there are cases in which Chazal do not set up prohibitions, and perhaps we should not as well. Um, but it's more likely that the prohibition will be violated, and therefore they set up protective fences. Now, this principle is perhaps most succinctly summarized in the first Mishnah in, per, in, in Pirkei Avot, in the third statement of the Anshei Knesset Agdola, where they say, Asus Yag, La Torah, or, as it appears in other places in Chazal, for example, in Moet Katan Dafei, with a playing on a pasuk, Ushmartem et Mishmarti, Make a guard for my laws. Now, I won't get into too much at the moment, but we'll come back to it. The assumption that as Rashi understands it, that you shouldn't make second order. They wrote... But both these sources make a fence for the Torah and make a mishmeret, a protection for my laws, show us that Chazal understood that it is important to not just say, don't do that which is itself asur, 
to avoid that which is intrinsically problematic, but it's important to protect that law by setting up protective measures. In Bamidbar Rabbah, the source for this is the Nazir, where we tell the Nazir to avoid even going near the Kerem, going near the vineyard, because he can't drink wine. Lech lech amrin and lenazira, schar schar lakarma lotikrav. And the like. Now, one could try to understand the nature of the slippery slope argument merely to understand how Chazal set up their Chakanot. However, as many of the Rishonim note, that this policy mechanism to set up protective measures to ensure that the Torah is not violated, this is not just something that Chazal did, but it's in fact a policy concern that poskim in every generation must be worried about. So, for example, as it said succinctly in the Magen Avot of the Rash Beitz, an Avot Aleph Aleph, v'chol dor v'ador rashay l'takein takanot b'mesh sha'am nechshalim b'hem l'avor al divrei Torah. Every generation has the right to set up takanot in those things that the community is weak in. V'lulei takanot ha'ila ha'torah nofelet ma'at ma'at and if they weren't going to do that, the Torah would slowly fall apart. A vineyard that is surrounded by a fence is not like a vineyard which is not surrounded by a fence. And the Rambam as well, in describing what is included in Lotasur, in the mitzvah to protect um, uh, to listen to the rabbis, rather, lo tasur, he writes, v'cheinit ba'er, and this is in the Hagdama, to Yana Chazaka, mehem ha-minagot v'atakanot, she'etkino, she'nagu b'chol dor v'ador, k'mo sh'arol b'itin sh'olto ha-dor. Included in this are the decrees in each generation, or the customs in each generation that the leaders, or the courts, see, uh, see fit to institute. And here you see that this concern that we're not just worried about directly stating that which is prohibited, but we must be proactive. Halacha, poskim, must be proactive in protecting those laws. You see that the Rishonim believe that this is not just something that Chazal did, but in fact it is a live issue, a live factor in the way that poskim interact with halachic issues. Now, under what circumstances do Chazal do this? And what circumstances uh, do they not? So, and how exactly would we take this in terms of applying it to a modern case? Now here, I think there is an excellent article by Review Val Sherlow 
who really plays out what exactly Chazal's way of thinking about policy issues is such that we can think about how we might allow this to affect modern halachic decision-making. Rav Shirlow was asked, as part of the Israeli government's attempt to determine the ethics of allowing people to choose the sex of their child when going through IVF or other um, artificial methods of... um, of having children um, or, sci- or scientifically involved methods of having children, whether and when it would be legitimate to, um, to choose the sex of a child. Now, there are many reasons why people might want to do this. Some are more legitimate um, than others. So, for example, um, some of the reasons that both post-skim and ethicists are more supportive of are um, choosing the sex of a child in a case where the parent or the the parents know that they have a genetic disease that is um, that is sex-linked, and therefore they want their child to be of the sex that would not be affected by this disease. Um, at the other extreme, the Issues that people are afraid of from ethical and halachic perspectives are issues such as eugenics um, or choosing um, one sex always um, because of a preference for one sex or the other. Um, As we know that in China, um, one of the effects of the one-child policy was an extreme... um, unbalanced between males uh, and females as many families wanted their children, their child, if they were only going to have one to be male. Um, Now with CRISPR um, and gene editing technology, concerns have been raised of um, people choosing not just the sex of the child, but everything from eye color and maybe one day intelligence and sports skills and the like. Um... But what you find in the general literature, um, as well as in the halachic literature, is that often people are uh, less concerned about, let's say, choosing um, the sex of a child in a particular case, but what they're worried about are, as I said, these dangerous eventualities. And I don't want to get too much into that halachic issue in the local sense. But when Rav Shurla was asked about this, he took a much more meta approach. And he said, look, essentially what you're asking is not just what is uh, prohibited, but what is the halachic perspective to be taken when we want to prevent a negative eventuality when perhaps the local issue is not so dangerous. So let's say a particular couple wants to choose the sex of a child for um, a pretty well-understood reason. Um, for example, one of, the exa- one of the examples given in much of the, the literature, especially in Israel, is what if a family already has four children of the same sex? So 
it's clear there they're not choosing the other sex because they have a, a strong preference. One sex or the other. It's just they would like, let's say they have four sons, they would like a daughter or vice versa. So that particular case, one can look at it and say that it's relatively innocuous. It's not showing a preference for one sex over the other in general. There's a relatively objective reason one can look at this family and say, I understand why you'd want to do this. Perhaps there's even halachic basis for this so that the couple can fulfill purvu. But I'm worried about what happens the next time when it's someone who just doesn't want to have boys or just doesn't want to have girls. So there, potentially, one can look at that case. And again, there are some posts who think it's intrinsically problematic. For, but for many, the problem is less the local issue and more how can I permit something which in a particular case is innocuous, but if allowed with abandon, could lead to serious problematic uh, issues bordering on or including um, something like uh, eugenics. So essentially, this the question in that case is, how do you formulate the values in halakha with regards to how you approach issues of the slippery slope. How do we create halachic policy or halachically inspired policy that recognizes that there is room to set up takanot or things akin to takanot not because the local issue is, it say, problematic, because it might lead to something problematic. And we discussed some of these issues a few weeks ago when we talked about policy in Psak, um, in Rivdaikovsky, where he touches on some of these issues. <coughs> so Rav Sherlow suggests that there are essentially three there are essentially three factors that Chazal take into account. There are three factors that Chazal take into account when they come up with slippery slope-based takanot. In Hebrew, he refers to them as sikun, sikui, and mechir, the danger, the chance, and the cost. But to describe it in my own words, what he says is it follows. When, you're, when Chazal set up Takano, they were worried about three things. One is that they wanted to know how bad would it be if, in fact, the end result we're worried about happened. The second thing they were worried about is how likely is it that if I don't prohibit X, Y will happen. And the third thing they were worried about is even if it's likely that by not prohibiting X, Y will happen, what is the cost on the lives of people who may be able to handle not doing Y, but can handle not doing X? Now, where do these rules come from? So, Sherlow argues as follows. He says, we see that Chazal only set up prohibitive and protective measures when the result is bad, really bad. Meaning we would be really concerned if Y would happen and therefore we have to prohibit X based on two principles in Chazal. 
One is Ein Gozrin Gzeira L'Gzeira. That Chazal, as we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this shear, they only set up protective measures, Gzeira, to protect biblical law. But they don't set up protective measures to protect rabbinic law or protect protective measures. And one way of looking at this, he argues, is that the reason Chazal do this is because if one violates a rabbinic law, that's bad, but it's not terrible. It's not intrinsically terrible because it's what the rabbi said, not what God said. If one violates a biblical law, that is a tragedy halachically. And therefore, it's worth setting up a rabbinic law to protect a biblical law, but it's not worth setting up a rabbinic law to protect a rabbinic law. However, Rav Sherlow notes that there are cases in which we are gozer gzeira l'gzeira. So, for example, the Beit Yosef, Paskins l'halacha, that we are gozer gzeira l'gzeira b'makom karet. That if the Isur that we're trying to protect is particularly stringent and carries the punishment of karet, so then we will institute second order gzeirot, not per se because we don't want people to violate the rabbinic law that leads to it, but because we're so concerned. The end result is so severe that we're willing to set up second order gzeirot. And therefore, in some issues in Shabbat, and Avodah Zarah, and Nida, you will in fact find second order gzeirot. Based on the coronavirus mashal we discussed at the beginning, this could also be what Chazal write, that under certain circumstances, while something might not have been prohibited, if the issue at hand is a regular biblical law, if what Chazal were protecting you from was sakana, was loss of life, so then Chazal write, chamira sakanta mi'isura, that the nature and the stringencies we apply to rabbinic laws aimed at protecting people's health is in fact stricter and doesn't follow the normal patterns of rabbinic laws that are even used to protect biblical laws because we take loss of life even more seriously than we take the violation of most biblical law. So that's the first category of issues that Chazal have to take into account, which is, what is it that we're trying to prevent and how bad would it be if we didn't manage to prevent it? The second issue Chazal have to figure out, or any rabbinic decisor setting up a modern gzera, is how likely is it for this negative result to be Violated. How likely is this unwanted outcome to happen? If it's very likely, so then obviously it's worth making protective measures. But if it's unlikely, so then for the few people or the few cases in which not prohibiting X might lead to Y, it's not worth banning X for an entire community. Rav Sherlow notes that this principle seems to emerge from 
the rabbinic principle of miltad lo the things are uncommon the rabbis don't make decrees about the third issue is what is the cost of the gzeira because every gzeira has a cost for example eating meat and milk that are cooked together is biblically prohibited we have multiple layers of gzeirah to protect us from violating basar bechalav, but and we and we think that's a good thing. It protects us from this violation and makes it that that's foreign to us. We have different sets of dishes, and for many of us, different sinks and the like. But we all know that there's also a cost. There's a financial cost on having two sets of dishes. Often there's a scheduling problem if you've had a late lunch and then you and it was meat and then you want to have a dairy dinner. This creates complications. These may not be huge costs, but they are costs. <clears throat> and he notes that Chazal often say things like that when there's a loss, so the rabbis did not decree. Or that if you have a decree that the majority of the Jewish people simply couldn't handle, so then we don't make a And from here he says, you see that Chazal care not only about how likely it is that by not prohibiting X will it lead to Y. And not only how bad would it be if Y happened, but even if Y would be really bad. And even if by not setting up protective measures it makes it significantly more likely that this result will be violated if people simply could not handle the cost of setting up these prohibitive measures so then Chazal were willing to be make and therefore Sherlow argues that if you want to cull the principles that Chazal used to figure out when it's worth setting up protective measures and you want to use that to create halachically informed public policy and set up your own gzerot or your own protective measures, call it what you will, those are the three factors that must be taken into consideration. How bad would it be if the unwanted result actually happened? What is the likelihood that by not setting up a protective measure, that result will happen? And what is the cost to people's lives if, in fact, you add these layers of prohibition that are not required by the letter of the law? You see these types of discussions implicit in much of the halachic policy disputes that you find in um, in our community. And you'll find this, now you find it with uh, the coronavirus issues where um, you see certain communities um, and for example, the current line of the OU and the Aguda and the RCA that we will wait two weeks after the government has allowed the opening of shuls to actually open shuls, you see that 
the Chamira Sakanta Mi'isura uh, impulse from Chazal um, plays out in their um, decision, where they're essentially saying, look, perhaps it would be safe, and perhaps the government thinks it's okay for us to go back to shul. And we know that it's hard for people to have so many weeks without shul. It's hard religiously, it's hard socially. But the end result is so bad as potential death. So therefore it's worth waiting an extra two weeks and setting up extra measures even than the government requires. That's one argument that you'll find in favor of waiting two weeks to open the shuls. Another that I've seen is that people said, well, look, in theory, if you could go to a shul and maintain the six feet of social distance and wear masks, so then maybe we could talk about it. But realistically, people aren't going to do that. So that's a argument of... Uh, of Chance, right? that we know the chances are high that if we don't set up protective measures, that not only will protective measures be violated, but what we're worried about will be violated. Meaning, we're not only worried that people won't stay six feet away, we're worried that if they, we let them into shul, they'll be talking to each other shoulder to shoulder without masks, and that will lead to the, to the terrible result. And, they're say, and when they say, and we know it's hard to not go to shul, but let's try to find ways of making it easier, or at least acknowledging that it's hard, they're pointing to the fact that they're aware that with every pro- protective measure comes an assessment of cost-benefit analysis. And their assumption at this point is that because of the danger to life, people can handle what is admittedly a high cost on their lives. And I think, therefore, you see that these three factors are not just theoretically what Chazal used, but it's what poskim and rabbis are using day in and day out when they formulate not just their psakim, but their halachically informed policy decisions. And again, this caution that you see with an acknowledgement of the cost, but saying that despite the cost, we recognize um, that you're, that people are suffering, still it's worth closing the shuls the extra few weeks because you see that balance of these three factors of saying the end result, the sikun is high, the chances that allowing people to shul will lead to not just staying in shul with social distancing and masks, but with people violating those principles and therefore really putting their lives potentially in danger. You see how that, those, those factors that Rosholo delineates are motivating the decisions and the responsible decisions that are being made by the rabbinic establishment um, in light of the, the danger posed by COVID-19. A second issue, which we'll discuss next week, is when Chazal, or when later rabbis, set up these protective measures, 
how open do they have to be about the fact that these are protect, protective measures rather than the Ikar Hadin. Now, in the example we discussed today, the rabbis involved are 100% open about the fact that this is a protective measure. They're not claiming um, that it's a formal isur. They're saying that the value of pikuach nefesh tells us to be extra cautious and go beyond what might be absolutely necessary. Um, and therefore, even if the government allows it and therefore deems it to be somewhat safe, we're going to go the extra mile to make sure that we're safe. But they're being explicit about the fact that because of how worried we are about Pikuach Nefesh, it's worth laying protective measure upon protective me- measure, even if one could eke out a justification. In fact, the government is. But in other cases, especially when it comes to um, more classically and more nitty-gritty halachic issues, the question of whether to cast a protective measure as a protective measure or simply to paskin without explaining the rationale behind the policy, that becomes a bit murkier. And we'll discuss that issue next week.